It is a privilege to be with y'all again this morning. If I haven't had the privilege to meet you yet, my name is Hardy. Um, I'm the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship uh, at the University of Central Florida over in Orlando. Uh, it really has been an honor to be with y'all the last uh, couple times. Uh, the first time I was uh, with y'all a couple weeks ago, we looked at what's the destiny, what's the goal of the Christian life? And we saw that our destiny is to be citizens of the true new city. And in this city, uh, there's no more sadness, there's no more pain, there's no more brokenness. Um, And most importantly, it is a city of boundless joy and worship because our God is there, that he will dwell with his people. And that's the goal where, where we as Christians are headed And yet we know that on this Christian journey, um, it can be incredibly challenging and struggles, but our good God has given us good gifts. And so the last week we looked at one of those amazing gifts, which is his very word, scripture. And we saw that scripture, um, all of it, every page of scripture is a gift to us that it might instruct us, encourage us, give us endurance in this life when it's hard, and ultimately that it might lead us to abound in hope. And so that we can rely on his word, we can trust his word and grow in that. And today I want to look at another amazing gift that he gives us as Christians on this journey of the Christian life, uh, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. And so if you'll look with me at Psalm 130, we're going to be turning to God's word to see this amazing uh, gift that he's given us. And uh, as you turn there, if, if you're here this morning and you're not yet convinced of Christianity, I'm so glad uh, that you're here this morning uh, to, to join us as a church to consider this most foundational uh, truth. And I'll be praying that uh, God shows you the, the centrality and the importance of this amazing gift uh, he's given us. So we'll be in God's Word, Psalm 130. This is God's Word worthy of our attention and full obedience. Psalm 130, my soul waits for the Lord, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is God's word. Pray with me. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Uh, Would you use this reading of your word and the preaching of your word for our good and for your ultimate glory? You know each and every one of our hearts. You know our weaknesses. You know our quickness to misunderstand. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would shine your light on our hearts, that the gospel might be clear to all. We pray this in your matchless name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite... uh, road trip games, if you uh, were, is a road trip game where everyone gets control of the music. It is a uh, game where the phone gets passed around and everyone gets to add to the playlist based on a a question. So the way it works is you might have a question like, if your life had a theme song, what would it be? And so everybody adds their song and everybody listens. Um, Then you ask another question like, 
if you had a song that reminds you of the seventh grade, what would you listen to? And then you have to listen to Daniel Powder's Bad Day four times in a row, because let's be honest, seventh grade's hard. Um, and so as the game goes on, depending on how long the road trip is, you really get to know the people in the car with you. You get to know, like, what are the songs that they listen to when they're sad? What are the songs that they go to when they're feeling on cloud nine and they're celebrating? But you also get to choose, like, how do I want to be known? What, what do of, of my story do I want to share and let people in on? Well, our, our text this morning, we just read, comes from the book of Psalms. And it's a collection of songs that the people of God have sung for so many years. And amazingly, this isn't just a random collection, but the, the Psalms have, as one Hebrew scholar stated, a three-word summary that encapsulate a theme that runs throughout. And that three-word summary is this, our God reigns. Our God reigns. And there are so many different songs that the Psalms sing in light of this theme. There's Psalms that thank Him and praise Him for the way that He is ruling and reigning. There's psalms that, in light of that truth that he does rule and reign, they cry out, they lament, they ask, Lord, how long? How long, O Lord? If you truly are ruling and reigning, how long will we be subject to brokenness, to evil? There's other psalms that, that sing of thanksgiving, that there was once a situation where the psalmist was in dire straits, things were out of order and in chaos, and they've seen God and his rule restore and reestablish. And so there's songs of thanksgiving. And so in the section that we just read, out of these 150 psalms, there's 15 that all bear the title of a song of ascent. And these songs, uh, many scholars believe that these were the songs that God's people would sing as they traveled to Jerusalem uh, on occasion throughout the year. There was three main Jewish feasts where the people of God would, would come to the city of Jerusalem. And these are the songs that were believed to be sung by the people of God. They are God's people's road trip songs, as it were. And so this psalm, this morning, Psalm 130, uh, the, the psalmist, he wants his fellow Israelites to know something about his story and the story of all the people of God. That they can draw near to this great God because he is a God in whom there is forgiveness. They can draw near to him only by his mercy and his mercy alone. And that's how that they might draw near. So we're going to look at this in kind of two ways. First, we're going to look at this theme of sin as distance, debt, and death. And then we're going to look at forgiveness as embrace, payment, and life from this psalm. And one commentator about this psalm, he says that there's this steady climb towards assurance, uh, assurance of God's goodness and his mercy, uh, that from the experience of one singer, he invites all of God's people to experience this assurance. So let's start where the psalm starts, looking at verse 1, this sin as distance. He, he cries in verse 1, out of the depths, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And immediately we see that distance uh, we hear the dread, we hear the urgency in the singer's voice as he cries out. And the depths here, it captures that terror. 
It captures the, the fear that this singer uh, experiences. It's not as if he slipped in the shallow end, kind of went under for a second. He is in the depths of the sea. He is helpless. He is overwhelmed by his distance and his dire situation from um, God. He feels that depth and terror. He is utterly dependent on the mercy of God to be restored in this moment when he names himself to be in the depths. And I don't know if you've ever experienced a a sensation where you have felt that powerless, that out of your your own ability to restore yourself. I think it's uh, telling that he he goes to the metaphor of being at the depths or the bottoms of the sea. Because if you've ever had an experience close to drowning, you know that feeling. I've only had that experience one time. Um, I did a summer in Acapulco, Mexico, which has this famous bay that's surrounded by mountains. So it's really deep. And uh, because it's deep, it's got some strong currents. It's got some big waves. Um, But I grew up swimming. So my college self was foolish enough to think that I could handle these, these waves. And so I go for a swim in this bay. I leave a small beach. But on my way back, the waves are so big, I can't see where I entered the water. So all I can see is cliffs. And so I'm getting tired because of the current. And so I decide, I guess I'm just going to have to try and get out through these these rocky cliffs. Well, the the waves were so strong that it just tossed me against the rocks. And it was so strong, it just pulled me back. And I just was flailing in the water. And that happened twice. And after the second time, I can't breathe. I have no control over my body. No amount of my swimming ability was going to be able to get me out. Spoiler alert. I'm okay. I got out. Um, and it was only by uh, the, the mercy of God that the wave actually tossed me feet first and I could actually climb out. But you, if you've experienced if you've experienced that sense of desperation, you know something of what the psalmist is declaring here. That he is powerless. He is helpless to do anything in his own strength or ability to save himself. He is completely dependent on the mercy of God. He has no ability to close that distance that he feels from God. He is utterly dependent. And we, we understand this, I think, um, in our relationships, horizontally, friendships, marriages, um, uh, co-working relationships, that our sin, that our mistakes causes distance, causes ruptures. Uh, but so often we minimize the distance that it causes, both in those relationships, but also with God. We tend to minimize the fact that sin causes distance wherever it is. And think about the reality if we miss that. If we try and just kind of go wash over the fact that sin doesn't actually cause distance. Think about this example. Husband, wife, husband approaches a wife about an investment opportunity that he wants to do. The wife isn't comfortable with it, and so she says no. Um, But rather than, than listening, the husband lies. And he actually takes their money, puts it into uh, this investment. Maybe it's a, a property that he thinks he can flip for a profit. And the market turns. He loses their money. Maybe he's taken out a loan on their house to buy the investment. So not only has he lost their money, he's also lost their home. And he's got to go and, and bring this to his wife. Now, how is that going to go if he doesn't acknowledge 
the distance, the, the, the damage that his lie has done to their relationship. It is not going to go well. He has to recognize the hurt, the, the, the sin that has caused a rupture in their relationship. Sin always has to be acknowledged for the distance that it calls, causes, not only in horizontal relationships, but primarily in our relationship to God. It always is going to cause that distance. But if you're thinking, um, wow, I would never tell a lie that big. Um, I would never do something that uh, bad. I think that's a classic way that our hearts try and minimize the own distance that our sin has caused before God and others. And it's a protective strategy that I'm not as bad as I, as I think um, others uh, might view me. I'm, I'm not as bad as, as them over there. But what scripture and this psalmist is showing is that all of us, all of us who have sin have an insurmountable distance between us and God that we in our own strength cannot cross. We cannot close that gap. And we try and close that gap by comparison all the time, if you're honest with yourself. Uh, That's, like I said, comparing to others, but it might even be comparing to some version of yourself, some ideal version of yourself that you think um, that if I can achieve this, then I'll close that gap. And what that might look like is something like this. You might be meeting with a friend or a mentor, and they might ask you, how are you doing spiritually? Or, or what does is, what is enjoying God look like for you in this season? And you start the comparison game in your mind of your ideal self. And if you've been reading scripture, if you've been praying like you think you should, if you've been attending church like you should, um, you start to think, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm checking those boxes. And you might say as much, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I've got no complaints. But if you haven't been doing that, if you haven't been doing those spiritual disciplines, if you haven't been reading, if you haven't been praying in, in the way that you feel like you ought, if you haven't been attending uh, the church gatherings as you feel like you should, you start to feel as though you are on spiritual um, kind of quicksand. I'm not doing well. And, and the temptation that that comparison uh, leads our hearts to believe is that our status, our standing before God is secured by our disciplines, by our works, by our actions. And that is never the case. What the psalmist is sharing here is that our spiritual standing is always secured by the mercy of God and the mercy of God alone. That is the truth. Now, important caveat. Will you flourish spiritually, reading scripture, praying, gathering uh, with the church body? Absolutely. But the danger of our sinful hearts is that we start to look to those things as the thing that secures our salvation. And the psalmist is pointing out that where there is sin, there is no way that our abilities can close that gap. There is insurmountable distance there. But he's also saying that not only is there distance, there's also a debt that we have before God. Look with me at verse 3 and 4. There's the nature of the, the distress that the psalmist feels becomes abundantly clear here, that it's not the effects of sickness or attack from outside enemies like it is in other psalms, but here it is guilt. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And this idea of God marking iniquities is a picture of him kind of having like a record book of our sins, marking them down. And as we sin, 
Every sin, we owe him a debt, and we rack that up. And what the psalmist is crying out is that if, if the Lord, if he were to, to count those, if he were to do that, not one of us would come out with a clean credit score. Not one of us would be able to stand before him debt-free, and not one of us would be able to pay the debt that we've incurred by our actions. We'd be like this one uh, sitcom character um, that is about my age that has never paid a bill in his adult life. Um, he comes into a small fortune, though, and he's about to do what he's always done. He just is about to blow it on creature comforts um, and not use it responsibly. But one of his friends convinces him, hey, why don't you start paying some of your bills? Why don't you start paying some of your responsibilities? And so he starts doing that. But what he comes to find out is the hole that he's dug himself in is so big that no amount of money is going to get him out of it. He gets laughed out of a phone store as he tries to buy a phone and his credit is so bad. He is not going to be able to dig himself out. And what the psalmist is saying is that all of us, all of us have a debt like this, that we cannot pay for ourselves. We'll never be able to do it. And so what that means for us is if the Lord were to mark iniquities, we are dependent on something outside of us to rescue us from that debt. And what is that debt specifically? It is death. That's the last thing we see with sin. Verse 3, it says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? This word stand here, it has a kind of military connotation. It's, it's as if you imagine soldiers standing for battle. In essence, what, what the psalmist is saying, he's saying is all of us, every single one of us has taken a militaristic, rebellious stand against God. We've taken a stand against his rule, against his reign, and we've said that I want to be the Lord of my life. I want to rule my life. And we've gone to battle against the Lord and the psalmist, recognizing um, this, comes to the right conclusion, and he says, if, if the Lord were to hold that against us, we all would receive the proper payment, which is a certain death sentence. That is what we would all deserve. None of us would be able to stand. None of us would be able to fight victoriously um, against the Almighty Holy God with that record. It's, it's a sobering picture that the psalmist is putting here, that he's inviting us to consider. All of us, limited, finite, frail human beings, declaring war, rebellion against an almighty, holy God. I mean, it is a sobering picture. It's, it's like my 18-month-old daughter declaring war against the MMA fighter. It's like, it is not going to go well. But it's sobering, because all of us in our hearts have done that. And so what that means for us then is that we must join the psalmist in his humility, every single one of us. We must acknowledge that we can draw near to God only, only because of his mercy, not our efforts. And it is only there that we will be able to have a, a clean record and be able to draw near to him. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God, he pays the proud back in full. In another place, it says he opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. 
And that's the invitation. That's the good news that this psalmist is singing about and he's building to. That though all of us, in the depths of our sin, uh, we have unfathomable distance that we cannot uh, cross over from God. We've, we've got this incalculable debt from these iniquities that we've built up. We've got this sure, certain descendants that we uh, would absolutely have to pay if it were not for another. And yet, he is approaching God with confidence. Why? Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's what we see next, that forgiveness here is embrace, payment, and life. And he's singing with confidence, first to God, but then it, it builds so much so that his joy, his elation actually flows out to his fellow Israelites. He starts singing to them. And remember, they're on the road. They're on the road to Jerusalem, and they're going to Jerusalem where the temple is. And he wants his fellow um, people of God, his fellow Israelites, to know that they are approaching a God in whom there is forgiveness, that he might be feared. And this fear, obviously, is different from the fear and the terror of verse 1. This fear that responds to the forgiveness of God is the proper response standing before a holy God, knowing that you have been forgiven. It's a response of um, awe and worship and reverence of who he is and what he has done. And that's the invitation this singer is giving to his fellow Israelites. He's confident that this is the character of this God. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. So as he, he travels, he, he's likely calling to mind the word that he is going to hear at the temple from the priest connected to the sacrifices, that when the sacrifices happen, there will be a declaration that the people of God have been forgiven because of the sacrifice. And he's calling to mind that in this word, I hope, and it gives him great hope, even more, he says, than a night watchman has in the certainty that the sun is going to rise and that he will be relieved from his post. He has more confidence, more certainty in the forgiveness and the declared forgiveness of God than a night watchman has, that he will be relieved from his post. He is singing with joy and gratitude of this amazing truth. Excuse me, this amazing truth. And And it grows to that point, like I said, where he can't hold it in. He's got to share it. And he starts singing to the other people of God, saying, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And I think we would do well to meditate and and to think about the confidence and the clarity with which this singer is singing these truths. He is assured that there is plentiful redemption with this God. And in him there is forgiveness for all. All, all our iniquities. And many of us struggle to believe that. We struggle to believe that there is forgiveness for all our iniquities, that there is plentiful redemption with this God. And so what that might look like is you might believe that there is forgiveness for your struggle with bitterness, but that fight that you shared harsh words in that friendship that utterly destroyed the relationship, that one's on you. You might believe that there is forgiveness for your manipulation in relationships, but that ongoing struggle with same-sex attraction, 
you don't even know if that one really is forgivable. Your, your ongoing uh, addictions, you think maybe, maybe that is forgivable. But the, the sin that you have yet to tell anyone about that comes to mind frequently, that one, that one's on you. And what the singer is singing about with clarity and confidence, he's saying, friends, with this God, there is plentiful redemption. There is forgiveness for all our iniquities. And you might ask yourself, how, how can I know that? How can I experience that experientially in my bones that there is forgiveness like this psalmist sings about? Well, Scripture is clear that we have something even better than this psalmist is singing, singing about. He says that it is in his word, I hope, referring likely to the word of, of the priest declaring forgiveness uh, for the people of God after the sacrifices as they went up to the temple. But what's amazing is we have the word, the word incarnate to look to for our forgiveness. And what I mean by this is we have God the Son who thousand years ago took on flesh lived a perfect life, who said it was the, the very, his very bread to do the will of the Father, constantly abiding in the Father's love, never experiencing distance from the Father due to sin or disobedience, never, never once having sin on his record that God might mark an iniquity against him, never, never once shaking his fist saying, it's my will, not your will, Father, and never once deserving a death sentence that even his executioner, Pontius Pilate, would say, I find no fault in this man. We have this word, the word incarnate, Jesus. And it's why Christians throughout all places and time have said, we boast, not in ourselves, not in our own works, but we boast in the cross of Christ. Because here at the cross is where we have this assurance of our forgiveness of sins, that there was another Israelite, a true Israelite, who made that journey up to Jerusalem. And when he got there, it says in Luke, what did he do? And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered her children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing what we see there is for all our distance from God, the debt that we've incurred and the death sentence that we all deserve in our rebellion, we see Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, weeping over the very ones that would kill him. He pours out his heart's desire that he would gather them into his embrace, that if they would just turn to him, he might embrace them. How can we grow in the confidence that there is truly forgiveness, that this God might be feared? We see ourselves through these tears of Jesus. We see ourselves as ones that he longs to gather, that he has gathered into his arms, that we are ones in whom he has limitless compassion for, that, that he would, for our sake, die a God-forsaken death where he would cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That we would never have to experience the distance of God. He goes and does that for us. 
And what's amazing, too, is what we believe and boast about in the cross is, is not only has that, that distance uh, been closed and we have access to God, but that debt we've incurred has completely been paid. Paul puts it amazing in uh, uh, Romans 5. We, though we have racked up a debt we could not pay, that our credit score is shot, we actually now get Christ's record. We are no longer held to account because of our record, but we actually not only have that wiped clean, but we get his record. To where Paul in Romans 5 puts it this way, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Did y'all catch that? We stand now in God's presence, no longer standing as enemies, but at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by faith. That is our standing. We have access to God, not distance, by grace, through faith. We have a debt that has been paid, not by our own efforts or abilities, but by Christ. And so the source, the source of our confidence in our forgiveness, that our distance, our debt, and our otherwise certain death sentence before God is the forgiveness found in the embrace, the payment and the death of Jesus that leads to eternal life. That is yours, Christian, if you are in Christ today. You have the embrace of God. You have your debts paid. You have eternal life by the death of Christ for you. And as one application point as we close, I want you all to consider, if you struggle to believe that, if you have moments where you doubt that, Jesus, even in the week where he accomplished all of this for his believers, he knew that we would struggle with this. So much so that he would give us a reminder, a sign for this journey that it truly is a gift that he has given and secured for us. And he's given it at his table, the Lord's Supper, that he says that it's his body broken for the forgiveness, his body broken for you, his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And so what that means as an application, what do we do if, if we, we struggle to believe this? We, we, we make sure to gather, to come to the church, to hear um, other believers sing of this redemption, of his forgiveness, to gather and come to the table with other believers that we might experience this forgiveness. It's a sign that points to the amazing reality that we've received Tim Keller has this amazing illustration, and um, if, if you don't know uh, who Tim Keller is, he um, is an amazing uh, servant of God that passed away uh, recently, um, that many in New City's denomination, the Presbyterian Church, are both full of grief for losing a servant uh, of God like this man, but also so full of gratitude for how he has served so many. But he would, he would reference uh, the Lord's Supper like this. He would He's a nerd, so he would reference the Lord of the Rings all the time. And in the last book, in the Lord of the Rings, Pippin, one of the main characters, he's standing at the gate of this fortress, and the gate's been destroyed, and the walls have been breached, and the the demon king is about to come and destroy all the people inside the city. And just as it looks like things are darkest, and Pippin uh, is about to be overcome by the enemy, he hears a horn in the distance. 
And it's the king of Rohan that is coming to save the day. And the king actually rides to his death, but in doing so actually saves the city in which Pippin was um, in. And from then on, whenever Pippin would hear a horn blowing in the distance, what would happen is he would burst into tears. And why is that? And the sound of the horn was a tangible reminder of his salvation secured by the king. He, he knew going through life that he was alive. He knew that he was alive because of what the king had done. But when he heard the horn, he knew in a more intimate, deeper way. Friends, what, what Jesus has given us in the table and the invitation to come and to taste a tangible reminder that you have the forgiveness of your sins is just that. That as sure as you taste the bread, as you, as you, as you drink the, the juice or the wine, you are forgiven. And so if you are struggling with, with, with pride, come to the table, to the one who is truly humble. If you are struggling with apathy, would you come to the table to the one who had his eyes fixed on the cross, his purpose set. If you struggle with anger, would you come to the table so that there would be a reminder of the one who took on all the anger and all the wrath of God for our sake? That is the invitation. And when we do that, I think we are reminded of his love. We're reminded of that assurance of forgiveness. And as this psalmist sings to others, we are invited to invite others in on this song of redemption. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this amazing truth that you are a God in whom there is forgiveness uh, for all our iniquities that with you there is plentiful redemption. And I pray that our hearts uh, would be comforted and also led out uh, in um, amazing, forgiving love to those you've called us into relationship uh, with. Would you find us faithful to all of the responsibilities you've called us to, uh, that we might live out of this status of forgiven as beloved uh, children of yours. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.